This is week number three of our sermon series called Great Romances of the Bible. And what we're doing in this series is simply allowing some of the famous romantic couples of Scripture to teach us about romantic relationships and marriage and that sort of thing. Last week, we started with our first couple, Adam and Eve, two people who were literally made for each other. And today, we're going to look at Abraham and Sarah. Now, Abraham was a dynamic leader, a great man of faith. Uh, Really, probably, I think most people would agree, one of the top two or three, maybe four greatest heroes of the Bible. Um, His wife, Sarah, was a very beautiful woman who loved him very much. In fact, she was such a model wife that uh, the Bible, the New Testament, holds her up as a perfect example of what a godly wife, submissive wife should be. That's over in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6. So this is really, absolutely one of the great couples of Scripture. And yet, their marriage had its ups and downs. They had way more good times than bad times, but they did hit a few bumps along the way. And we're going to look at one of those turbulent periods in their marriage today see what we can learn from it. I want you to follow along in your Bibles or else on the screen. In Genesis 16, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and I want you to keep in mind before I read this that this incident happens before uh, their names are changed. When we read this passage, they're called Abram and Sarai. Later, they become Abraham and Sarah. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the passage as it's written But when I preach the rest of the sermon, I'm going to call them Abraham and Sarah because that just feels more comfortable to me, and that is how we know them anyway. So let's get started. Genesis 16, starting with verse 1. Now Sarai, and Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened ten years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, Abram, this is all your fault. I'll just read it. I don't write it. I put my servant into your arms, and now she's pregnant and treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Now, we don't know exactly how long Abraham and Sarah had been married when this particular event took place, but we do know from piecing bits of information together that Abraham was 86 and Sarah was 76. And I know that seems really old, especially when you're talking about having babies, but you have to remember that people lived a lot longer in those days. And so instead of picturing them as a couple of uh, you know, really, really old people tottering around with their walkers and trying to find their dentures. I think it would be 
more accurate to say that they were facing what would be for them the middle years of their marriage. They certainly weren't newlyweds, but they still had a lot of good years left at this point. Now, it's obvious that what they did in this passage was not wise. You don't need me to tell you that. But there are some other things in this passage that are not quite so obvious. If you look closely at these verses we just read, you'll begin to see that Abraham and Sarah were dealing with four pretty difficult issues in their marriage. And I want to work through these because I think there are probably a lot of people dealing with these same issues. First of all, they were feeling the effects of advancing age. Again, they weren't decrepit by any means, but they weren't kids anymore either. And let's face it, as we get older, things begin to change. For one thing, we experience a loss of energy. Boy, do we experience a loss of energy. We're simply not able to do all the things we once did. Somebody said it this way, youth looks forward. Old age looks backward. Middle age looks worried. And we know that's true because you get to that middle age and, and all of a sudden you don't have the energy you used to have. Some things are, are kind of harder to do and you realize it's only going to get worse. It's never going to get better. It's only going to get worse. It's during those middle years that you begin the transition from romanticism to rheumatism. And <laughs> it may take a few years, but you know that transition has begun. Which leads to the second effect of advancing age, and that is emotional pressure. And this is a real serious one. Um, whenever you hear about somebody having a midlife crisis, somebody's gone out and done something really not smart, you know when you hear that, that that person is having a struggle trying to cope with the aging process on an emotional level. It's as if the person is panicking, doing silly outlandish things, sometimes even immoral things, in a futile effort to hang on to their youth. Consequently, most experts agree that it's during those middle years of a marriage that uh, a couple will face their greatest challenges. And some of you may know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you've been there and done that. Well, the second issue that Abraham and Sarah were facing was a noticeable decline in romantic activity. They'd been married a long time, and the flame of romance, which had once been a, a roaring blaze, now pretty much has become just a glowing ember. Uh, even as you read this passage, you can sense the tension in their relationship. And the truth is that... Um, Time and age do diminish the romantic feelings that we feel so strongly when we're young. Recently, I ran across something in my reading called The Seven Stages of a Man's Life, and I want you to see them. I'll put them up on the screen. Uh, those seven stages are, let's have them, guys. There they are. Pills, spills, drills, thrills, bills, ills, pills, and wills. And if you, if you just study that list for a second... It's exactly right. Spills, that's when you're a baby. Drills, that's when you're in school. Thrills, that's when you're a young adult. 
bills, ills, pills, and wills. Now, I want you to look at stage three, which is thrills. And that is so true of young adulthood. I mean, when you're a young adult, you're going to have so many thrilling things happen to you. You're probably going to fall in love for the first time in your life. Serious relationship. You're probably going to get married. You're maybe going to have your first child. So many thrills to experience when you're a young adult. But look at the next two. Bills and ills. Yeah. They come, don't they? The bills come. And then you get a little older and you don't feel as good. The ills start coming. And then the pills to take care of the ills. And the first thing you know, things are just not like they used to be. And that's where Abraham and Sarah were when we meet them in this passage. The third issue they were facing was the presence of another woman. Hagar was Sarah's Egyptian maid, and while it doesn't exactly say so, I think we can assume that she was pretty attractive. And while I don't pretend to understand all the complexities of the female mind, I do know that attractive young single women can make older married women feel nervous and insecure. Now you might say, well, if Sarah felt that way, why did she suggest that her husband have a baby with this woman? And that brings me to the fourth thing they were dealing with in their marriage, and that was a weakness of their faith. At times in the past, their faith had been incredibly strong, but at this particular time, we can see it's kind of shaky. You see, God had promised that he was going to give them a son, and this son would be the first of many descendants, more numerous than the stars of the heaven, uh, so numerous that they wouldn't be able to count them, and this promise had been made. The problem was um, Abraham and Sarah were getting older, they hadn't been able to conceive yet, and they just felt and heard that clock ticking. Abraham and Sarah felt time slipping away. They knew the promise God had made, but, they, but it wasn't happening, and they felt like maybe they just needed to help it along. They felt like God was dragging his feet, and maybe they just needed to get in there and do some things to, to kind of move things along a little bit, and oh, how common that is. So many people today become impatient with God. We know what ought to happen. We know what promises God has made. But we don't see anything progressing. We don't see anything happening. And so we feel like we ought to kind of help God a little bit, say or do something that will speed up the process. Listen, friends, that kind of impatience, maybe you would call it eagerness, that's not a good word for it. When you have that kind of impatience, you're not just eager, you're showing a lack of faith. Listen, when you really trust God, I mean really trust him, you accept not only his will, but also his timetable. And I want you to think about that the next time you're in a situation where you feel like God isn't moving fast enough. You feel like God is dragging his feet. You feel like God needs to get with it and hurry up. Listen, that is a lack of faith. True faith, trusting God, means not only uh, accepting his will, but also his timetable. And so you can see here that Abraham and Sarah were dealing with some issues. 
in their marriage. And consequently, they were frustrated. They were feeling a lot of pressure. uh, And they wound up making a horrendous decision. What I'd like to do in the time I have remaining is draw three important conclusions from their experience. Because I think there are a lot of couples, probably a lot of couples in those middle years, who are um, experiencing these same pressures and feeling like um, things are just not quite right in their marriage. And so I want to draw three conclusions from uh, their experience that I hope will help us. Here's the first one. Even the best people experience ups and downs in marriage. I'll go back to something I said a moment ago. Abraham and Sarah were great people. Some of the best people in the Bible. The Bible holds them up as examples for us to follow. Abraham is even called the friend of God. Can you imagine? He's called the friend of God. These are great people. But when we meet them in the 16th chapter of Genesis, they are in a down period. And maybe you're going through a down period right now with your spouse. Maybe you've got some issues. Maybe you've got financial struggles. Maybe you've got some health problems. Maybe there's a member of your family that's driving you crazy. And so, you're not holding hands as much as you used to. Maybe you're not laughing anymore the way you used to. Maybe you're arguing more than you ever have before. Maybe those little eccentricities that your spouse has that you used to think were so adorable are now really grating on your nerves. And so, maybe, maybe for the first time in your life, you're starting to think about how nice it would be to be single again. Did you know there's only one group of people in the world, one group of people in the entire world that is more passionate than single people who wish they were married. And that is married people who wish they were single. (laughs) That's right. And I say this to single people all the time, single people who wish they were married, and I'll say it right now, and if you're single and you wish you were married, I want you to hear it. It is much better to be single and wish you were married than it is to be married and wish you were single. It's much better. Uh, It's basically the difference between feeling empty and feeling trapped. Because when you're single and wish you were married, yes, there's going to be a feeling that something is missing from your life and there could be an emptiness in your life. But if you're married and wish you were single, you're going to feel like you're locked up in some kind of a, a prison situation and, and you're going to think probably that it's very, going to be very difficult to get out of this situation. You don't know what you would do if you got out of this situation. Maybe it's even a, a situation where you can't get out for some reason. And friends, that, that, that sense of being trapped, of being locked up in a prison is a horrible feeling. It creates incredible desperation in people and causes them to do crazy things. I am convinced that the vast majority of extramarital affairs are simply a reaction to this feeling of being trapped. 
And many times it's not just extramarital affairs, it's other things too, because when you feel trapped and you feel angry about it and you don't, don't know what to do, many times you begin lashing out with angry words, hurtful words, abusive words, and after the angry words start to fly, it's often not long before the fists start to fly. And a lot of abuse in marriage is because people are not happy and they feel trapped. It is far better to be single and wish you were married than to be married and wish you were single. And that's why I say right now that if you're married and wishing you were single, whatever you do, keep your head don't do something you'll regret for the rest of your life. Tap the brakes. Take a deep breath. Assess your situation. And figure out what you can do to make things better. Because I tell you, there's always something you can do to make your marriage better. Always. You've never come to the end of that road. There's always something you can do to make your marriage better. For one thing, you can pray more. You can make adjustments inside your own head. Learn to look at things a little differently, perhaps. You yourself can become easier to get along with, because I'll tell you something, if you're frustrated with your spouse, there's a real good chance your spouse is frustrated with you too. <laughs> and there's always something you can do to make your marriage better. But it starts with you facing up to a simple and I think very encouraging truth, and that is that even the very best people go through ups and downs in marriage. The second conclusion I want to draw from Abraham and Sarah's experience is that there are times when husbands and wives need to disagree. And that may surprise you. Maybe you were expecting me to put another word in there. Maybe there are times when husbands and wives need to forgive. That would be true. There are times when husbands and wives need to cooperate. That would be true. But no, the word I want you to stick in that blank is disagree. If you look back at our text again, you'll see the real turning point in this story comes in verse 2 when Sarah comes up with a really bad idea. That Abraham should try to have a baby with Hagar. I mean, as bad ideas go, that one was epic. Guys, just let me give you a little piece of free advice. If your wife ever suggests that you try to have a baby with another woman, say no. There is absolutely nothing good that can come from an idea like that. Abraham should have said, wait, what? What did you say? No way am I doing that. But the Bible says... He said, okay. <laughs> it says, and Abraham agreed with Sarah's proposal. A critical moment in their marriage, in their life together. He needed to disagree with her. But he didn't. Every now and then I'll hear somebody say, you know, my wife and I never argue. Whoa, we never argue, we never have a disagreement, we get along so well. And usually when people say that, they're kind of puffed up with pride and they're, they're ta talking about how great their marriage is and they're wanting to really impress you. And I suppose it sounds good. I, I think it's horrible. 
if you come up to me and tell me you and your spouse never argue and never have a disagreement, I'm going to pray for you. Because <laughs> your marriage is in trouble. Because let me tell you, there is no way two people can live together for a number of years without one of them having a bad idea. And when somebody has a bad idea, when your spouse has a bad idea, it's your job as a spouse to be that check and that balance. It is your job as a spouse to say, you know what, that's not a good idea. You show me a couple that never has an, a, a disagreement. You show me a couple that never has an argument. You show me a couple that, that agrees on everything. I'll show you a couple that's done some really dumb stuff. I know some guys accuse their wives of nagging. And I guess some wives do nag, but I wonder if a lot of those nagging wives aren't women who love their husbands and are trying to keep them from doing something stupid or to stop doing something stupid. It's your job as a spouse to disagree when you see your husband or your wife about to make a bad decision. The third conclusion I want to draw from Abraham and Sarah's experience is that it's always a mistake to try to improve upon God's perfect will for your life. That ultimately uh, is the really big mistake they made. God had a perfect plan for them, and they messed it up by trying to push things along too fast. And I know they may have had good intentions. I don't question that. But the bottom line is they were taking matters into their own hands and doing things God did not want them to do. They were making decisions that he did not approve of. Listen, husbands and wives. God has a perfect plan for your marriage. And it's not to make you miserable. It's not to fill your marriage with stress and frustration. So if you are miserable or if your marriage has a lot of stress and frustration in it, that is all the proof you need to know that your marriage is not tracking with God's will. So the best thing you can do if that's where your marriage is right now is to take inventory of your relationship, compare what you're doing in your marriage with what the Bible teaches, and try to find out where you veered off. Now that's the whole purpose of this sermon series, is to hold these Bible couples up to you, to let you look at them, to let you see what they did and what they didn't do, so you can begin to understand what a godly relationship looks like and what it doesn't look like. And listen, don't be afraid to take inventory of your, your marriage. A lot of people maybe would feel intimidated by that challenge. A lot of people say, well, Mark, how do I do that? I don't even know where to begin. How am I supposed to take inventory of my relationship? Listen, I don't think it's going to be that hard. I'm guessing that the mistakes you've made are probably pretty obvious. The problems in your marriage are probably pretty obvious. You probably would have no trouble articulating them. The hard part will be admitting responsibility and taking ownership of those mistakes. Because there's a tendency for so many couples to want to play 
the blame game. That's, that's the mistake a lot of couples make. Um, they can see what's wrong with their marriage. You, you ask them, what's wrong with your marriage? They can, they can tick the items right off, but they don't want to take responsibility. They want to blame the other person. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had couples come into my office and sit down and we're there to talk about their marriage. And as soon as they sit down, as soon as, as soon as they sit down, they start telling me what that other person does that's sitting on the other end of the sofa, that other person, what they're doing that is so awful. And they both do it. It's like they dig into their little trench and they just start lobbing verbal hand grenades at each other. That'll never work. That will never work. It will never bring you a better marriage. You know what you have to do if you want a better marriage? You've got to get to the place where you don't care whose fault it is. You have to get to the place where you don't care whose fault it is You only care about one thing, and that is making it better. And when you can stop blaming and pointing fingers and just start doing what it takes to make things better, that's an attitude God will bless. And you'll be amazed at how quickly your marriage will get better. But it starts with you Beginning to bring things more in line with God's will for your life. Milton Berle, um, a comedian from my childhood, once said, Marriage is a great institution, but who wants to live in an institution? (laughs) Unfortunately, that's um, the attitude a lot of people develop as they go through those middle years of marriage. The romance disappears. The bills and the ills and the pills start replacing the thrills. And suddenly that that single life that you were once so desperate to get out of starts looking pretty good again. But those years can also be great years. If you work together, if you always think about what's best for each other, but most importantly, if you always make God's plan, his will for your lives, your number one priority. If Abraham and Sarah had just done that, if they had just trusted God and accepted his will, none of this bad stuff would have ever happened.